So, what is any respectable girl brought up to do but to catch some rich man's fancy and get the benefit of his money by marrying him? As if a marriage ceremony made any difference in the right or the wrong of the thing. Ah, the hypocrisy of the world makes me sick. That's Mrs. Warren from Shaw's 1893 play, Mrs. Warren's Profession. She is an ex-prostitute turned brothel keeper, and when her Girton-educated daughter finds out and is horrified by this, she confronts her with the below living standard wages and atrocious working conditions that women face, and says, so the only trade, in effect, that society allows to women is being kept by a man, like pleasing a man, and living off his money. And whether that's inside or outside of marriage, he says, makes no difference at all. That argument became a central tenet of feminist campaigns and suffrage campaigns through the end of the 19th, beginning of the 20th centuries. So, for example, um, Cicely Hamilton, a leading suffragist at the beginning of the 20th century, wrote in her polemic, Marriage as a Trade, in 1909, for woman, who has always been far more completely excluded than man from direct access to the necessities of life, who has often been barred both by law and custom from the possession of property, one form of payment was demanded, and one only. It was demanded of her that she should enkindle and satisfy the desire of the male, who would thereupon admit her to such share of the property she, he possessed or earned as should seem good to him. In other words, she exchanged, by the ordinary process of barter, possession of her body for the means of existence. As Hamilton says, prostitution is thus only the logical conclusion of this state of affairs. And she further warns that while men think that women only exist to become wives and partners and mothers, they have a rude awakening when it comes to romance. As she puts it, someday he will discover that woman does not support life only in order to obtain a husband, but frequently obtains a husband only in order to support life. Now, makes a good polemical argument, but hardly makes a particularly good theatre. So there are a lot of pamphlets and so on written on this form, and there are a number like Shaw's Mrs. Warren's Profession of plays written around the beginning of the 20th century in which women turn to prostitution to support themselves and support their families. Uh, problem with these were not only they didn't make terribly good box office, but also they didn't get a license for public performance. So, what I want to offer you is one play which managed to take this argument and put it together with, well, it was subtitled A Romantic Comedy. It's Cicely Hamilton's play, Diana of Dobson's, and it was really good box office. It opened in February 1908 at Lena Ashwell's Kingsway Theatre, ran for 143 performances straight off, and was only taken off so that Ashwell could have a rest before taking it on tour. Uh, it was frequently revived, and in 1917, it was made into a film. So how did Ashwell do it? Well, the play opens in the living-in system, um, the dormitory, so that a large part of the workers' wages are paid in board and lodging. And the first act has the exhausted workers in a large drapery firm coming in and getting ready for bed. And it's kind of reverse Cinderella. So they come in looking like attractive, beautiful, young, nubile shop girls, specially designed to market the goods, and they take off the false hair, the false curls, the ribbons, the collars, the cuffs, all the rest of it, and get into their very unattractive nighties, all without, as the critics, they, all the critics, the male critics, complained about the sensational nature of this scene, and also complained that no flesh was seen, and as one critic put it, 
the various stages of undress are not made pretty. Um, he's clearly very disappointed by this, failing to see the point of it. Um, and one particular worker, Diana of Dobson's, rages against the impoverishment of their life, the fact that their meager wages buy them for 14 hours work a day for five shillings a week. It's less than 14 pounds a year, which leaves them, leaves them in effect no life. Their entire, their bodies, everything else are in effect bought by the firm to help sell their goods. At this point, the fairy godmother intervenes and Diana receives a letter informing her she's inherited 300 pounds from some distant relative. And she announces that rather than invest it sensibly and supplement her meager wages to a very small extent, she intends to blow the whole lot in what she calls one crowded hour of glorious life. She's going to really live for this time. So, next act, Cinderella goes to the ball. Posh hotel in Switzerland. She's wearing Paris gowns, extraordinarily ugly in my view, but the very latest thing in haute couture, and she has not one but two suitors, one of whom is Sir Jabez Grinley, millionaire owner of the drapery store she used to work in and several other stores, who freely admits that he's made all his money, he's a self-made man, he's made it all by just undercutting the competition, as Diana points out, by paying starvation wages to workers like herself. He proposes and she rejects him. And the extent to which he thinks he's kind of bought her is there is a tiny detail, tiny stage direction. At a point when he's talking to her, he, without really thinking, starts fingering the fabric of her sleeve. It's the drapery man. He's sizing up the goods and she quietly removes her sleeve from his hand. But Diana receives another proposal uh, from Victor, Captain Victor Bretherton. Um, he's a fantastically idle ex-guardsman on an income of 600 pounds a year, which places him in the very top of the upper middle classes at that point. And he can't live on it, he's far too extravagant for that. Um, and his aunt, who's tired of bankrolling him, encourages him to propose to the supposedly rich Diana. And she then tells him the truth, and he becomes that she doesn't have any more money, that she's blown her entire 300 pounds in this month, and she now has to go back to working in the shop. And he calls her an adventuress. And she throws it back at him and says, well, you're the one who, was looking to live on my money, but also, I'm the, how dare you look down on me? I support myself through my own effort with no help from connection or family or anything else, and you couldn't survive six months doing that. Next act, he's taken up the challenge. That's him on the end. Um, sure enough, he tried to survive on his own wits and his own work for six months, and three months later, he's homeless and starving on embankment, um, at which point, he meets Diana, who's come back from Switzerland, fell ill, lost all her money, and she is too starving and homeless. And he proposes to her, to which, having now realized that 600 pounds a year is ample not just for himself, but for both of them. And Diana responds as follows. Captain Bretherton, I'm homeless and penniless. I haven't tasted food for nearly 12 hours. I've been starved for days, and now, if I understand you right, you offered to make me your wife. Under the circumstances, don't you think you're putting too great a, a strain on my disinterestedness? Um, and just in case, if forgetting, there's a little detail, the, the woman between them on the bench, just before, who's sitting there between them, she finally moves off so he can propose to her, um, propose to Diana. She's a long-term homelessness, homeless woman. 
And there's a sense she's what Diana could become if she doesn't accept him. And at the end of the play, she does accept him, and the bargain is sealed not with a kiss, but with cups of coffee and doorsteps of bread with a borrowed shilling from a, from a kind of, it's like the equivalent, the 1908 equivalent of a kebab van on the other side of embankment. So, it's Cinderella. It's Cinderella, but where the important bit is where the prince dresses as a working man and finds out the real value of money and the real value of work. But is it a romance? That's the question. This is where I love, I work on theatre, and it's what I love about theatre, is that ultimately, whether it's a romance or not, whether it played as a romance, you can't tell from the script alone. It could be an entirely cynical bargain from the script. It depends really on tiny gestures, on looks, on the tone of voice as performed, on whether the attention at the very end is more on the hunks of bread and the coffee or on each other at that point in the play. So how do you determine whether it played as a romance or not? Well, it made big box office and romance sells, so maybe that tells us something. But even that can't tell you absolutely, and it can shift. Sure, famously, um, only a couple of years after this play, Pygmalion ends with Eliza Doolittle, kind of taken out of the working class and the problem of how she's going to earn a living now. She's become middle class and so on. Um, and when that play was first performed, Herbert Beerbohm Tree, playing Henry Higgins, turned the play, in effect, into My Fair Lady. So he ended the play by presenting um, the actress playing Eliza with a large bouquet of flowers and looking adoringly at her. Um, and Shaw, when he came on and saw this, came into the 100th performance and saw it, was outraged. Um, and Herbert Birentree was rather upset. He said, but my ending makes money. You ought to be grateful. Your ending is damnable, said Shaw. You ought to be shot. Um, so there's a sense which you could wrench the whole play around by exactly just by those kind of unscripted, tiny gestures at the end of the play. You could undercut the whole politics of the play. So how was it played at the end? All we've got, really, to try and determine that are reviews of the play. And interestingly, critics are pretty much split 50-50 from the reviews at the time on whether they saw it as a wholehearted romantic ending or whether they saw it as something more uneasy. So one critic, for example, picked up on there's a tiny break in Diana's voice at the end of Act 3 when she gives... Captain Bretherton, his dismissal, a kind of sense, and they, they made that heartbreak. That meant she was really in love with him. Whereas another critic complained that the position would be simplified if it had been brought out that Diana is in love with Bretherton. There's a kind of unease going on. So which was it? And some critics, modern critics looking at the play, have decided either that it was a romance or that it's very clearly a kind of cynical point about how far she's at her wit's end at this point and ready to settle for marriage. What I like rather is that the idea that this very ambiguity, we don't have to try and sort out through this ambiguity, we should actually embrace it and accept it, exactly that uncertainty, so that the play, like, for example, Charlotte Bronte's Valette, which ends with a kind of very open, uncertain ending, which leaves Sunny Imagination's hope, very overtly it says, if you're a romantic, write in what you want to at this point, at the end of Diana of Dobson's, I'd say it's actually quite deliberately left ambiguous. And that that point above all, that what the play is in effect saying, therefore, is don't offer women a working wage. Don't offer them decent professional and legal rights and opportunities. And how can you ever be sure that she married you for love, not money?